Trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, where we ask academics to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. Today, we're talking about music. You probably heard your first strains of music when you were in utero. From then on, it's helped you learn, helped you relax, hyped you up, helped you work and study, helps you exercise, helped you celebrate and helped you grieve. It's completely ingrained in every aspect of our lives, but it's also the subject of a significant body of academic work. So today's episode is all about research on music. We'll hear from researcher Hollis Taylor, who spent 12 years recording and transcribing birdsong, and Dr Clint Bracknell, a researcher at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, will explain how he's investigating the power of song to help address the national and global crisis of Indigenous language loss. But first... Conversation tech editor Shelley Hepworth speaks with Dr Ben Swift, a digital artist and computer science lecturer from the Australian National University, about how technology is changing the way we interact with music, or even our understanding of what music is. Ever since we built the first drum, technology has been changing the way we make and listen to music. The phonograph allowed us to have the experience of a concert at home, the Walkman made music portable, and the internet revolutionised distribution. Now, almost every song you hear is produced on a computer. So how might technology change music in the future? One of the possibilities here is that artists, instead of just giving you a recording, they give you this interactive sonic experience so that you maybe get to choose the way that the song kind of goes or some aspects of the audio-visual experience. That's Dr Ben Swift. He's a lecturer in the Research School of Computer Science at the Australian National University, and he leads the Code, Creativity and Culture group there. You know, there are a few artists that have experimented with this. Radiohead and Björk have released app slash album things, and this Sigaros Magic Leap thing, certainly I will be first in line to try it, because what they promise is the ability not just to listen and passively experience this thing that your favorite artist has created, but actually be an active participant in the way that it evolves and you know changing things about the, the sound and the pictures or whatever because of this technology. So he mentioned Magic Leap there. What he's talking about is a pretty highly anticipated collaboration with Sigur Ross. They're a rock group based in Iceland and known for their experimental sound. So what do we know about this collaboration? Well, Magic Leap is an augmented reality company, and essentially it's trying to use this technology to enhance the musical experience. Augmented reality is kind of like virtual reality, only instead of watching a 360-degree immersive video through a headset, you wear a different type of headset that allows projections to appear like holograms in the world around you. These sort of new interfaces and these new physical devices they're going to change the way that we interact with computers in general. And I think they're going to be used by artists in all sorts of interesting ways to change the way that we interact with music composition systems and the way that we control music. This tech, if it works, could even lead to new instruments and new ways of experiencing music. There are a lot of different companies trying to build these devices. They're really hard. Battery life sucks at the moment. 
things need to be nice and light so that they can fit on your head without needing to have Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of neck muscles. But the the possibilities here is that instead of being instead of when you kind of look around you, you just see the physical objects in your space. You have this vivid overlay of of a virtual world that not only looks cool and provides information, but potentially you can kind of even interact with. And so you can imagine all sorts of weird new instruments that musicians could create with that technology. I asked him to describe what exactly a Magic Leap musical experience would be like. Magic Leap specifically are promising augmented reality and to kind of give you, in as well in addition to your the physical in space in which you inhabit, to overlay amazing virtual creations with which you can interact and you know you can see little critters running across your desk or you can touch the sound as the waves kind of swim around your head in vivid hues. But Dr Swift says we need to take all these promises with a hefty grain of salt. After years of hype, Magic Leap has only just released a version of its headset and early reviews suggest the technology still has a way to go before it lives up to its promise. The other things I guess that I'm conscious of as somebody who works in technology and and both researchers and also teaches this next generation to build amazing things is there's going to be a lot of people that promise a lot of stuff and it's really easy to do a slick looking demo and what I always want to sort of say when I see some of these amazing videos or or demo things is you know I, I want to be generous and say that seems really cool, but I will reserve my final judgment until I've had the chance to experience it for myself. So devices like Magic Leap are still at the demo stage, but there are other new forms of computer generated music that are here right now. Take live coding, for example. So one way to think about it is like really nerdy DJing. So imagine if instead of just using decks and turntables or some other kind of software, a DJ actually wrote a computer program live in the club to generate the appropriate music in that moment. So live coding is the act of writing a computer program to make music where the musician is tweaking the program on the fly in response to the, you know, the artistic demands of the situation. And while in the past technology has been used to imitate the traditional instruments, Dr. Swift says live coding lets him approach a computer program as the instrument itself and you're considering the computer on its own terms and saying, okay, as an artist, as a musician, what can I do with this? Part of my research in my, my job here is actually building new programming languages specifically for this task. So how does it work? You know, we kind of have loops where we say, okay, do this thing over and over again, maybe varying something each time. And you can imagine, for instance, a drum kit. If you want to do a traditional kind of four on the floor club beat, then say you've got a loop which is looping every beat and then you go okay every beat I'm gonna play a kick drum and all, all of a sudden you've got doof 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 and then you say okay well only on the two and four beats let's play a snare so then we've got doof snare 
duff, snare, duff, snare, duff, snare. And so you can see that these basic structures, we can actually, you can probably imagine that we could write a little chunk of computer code which encodes that basic drum pattern and then the rest of it just kind of builds from there. And if you put 10 people in a room doing the same thing, you get what is known as a laptop orchestra. Rather than an individual musician using their computer as a solo instrument, what happens if we have a bunch of them? And again, in the orchestral model, we have different musical instruments which fulfill different roles within the ensemble. Now, live coding is pretty niche. You might be thinking that this doesn't sound like music you'd listen to or a gig you'd attend. But it's hard to predict how new technologies might influence the way we experience music in the future. So in any artistic practice, you've got an avant-garde who are doing weird, new things. But then there's sort of this winnowing process where some of those weird, new things actually turn out to be really cool and then get taken up by more traditional or more mainstream kind of practices. Look at sampling or computer-generated beats, for example. Tell somebody 70 years ago that the majority of drum beats, for instance, are going to be produced not by somebody actually hitting a piece of skin strung across a wooden kind of case, but just by playing little snippets that somebody else recorded. They'd think you're nuts. But it's just become, through lots of different artists, pushing those boundaries and finding cool ways to do that stuff. It's become the, the main way that we generate beats these days. Music has been part of the evolution of computers since they were first invented. They kind of came around the Second World War. And then by 1957, we have uh, a couple of composers at the University of Illinois, uh, Isaacson and Hiller, composing the first piece of computer music, a piece called the Iliac Suite. And so music isn't sort of a, a new blow-in to the world of computing. It's actually been used and woven in since right from the beginning when we had computers. Whether it's Magic Leap, live coding, or some yet-to-be-invented intersection of music and technology, he reckons the future looks bright. There will be a period when this technology kind of, even before it goes mainstream, but when it becomes available, there will be a period where it just kind of blows people's minds because we're really not used to our world being augmented digitally. You know, we have specific narrow rectangles via which we interact with the digital world. You know, the smartphone, the laptop or the desktop monitor. But what this kind of promises is the ability that any part of your world may then, perhaps as a surprising or, you know, unexpected thing, have digital content and, and a digital experience, you know, just woven right through it. You know, I think we're in for a fun ride, especially because a lot of this stuff is going to be new and that's going to be really cool. The next music researcher we'd like you to meet is Dr. Hollis Taylor. Hollis Taylor was an accomplished violinist, a former Oregon state fiddle champion with an established career and perfect pitch, when one day something quite unexpected happened. She heard a pied butcher bird. 
It was on my first trip to Australia in 2001, and I was in WA on a remote sheep station, just wandering about when all of a sudden I heard a jazz flutist in a tree. It's the only way I can describe it. And then uh, there was an answer and then another answer. I was in the middle of a trio of birds singing together, and I had no idea birds sang in trios. It was really an epiphany for me. As a researcher, most recently at Macquarie University, Dr. Taylor has been studying, recording and transcribing Pied Butcher bird songs for 12 years. Taylor produces what she calls recompositions, musical arrangements that mimic and complement Pied Butcher bird songs. Now, we'll come back to the music in a minute, but let me just get a pied butcher bird in your mind. The pied butcher bird is native to Australia. They're black and white, and they look a little bit like a magpie, but they don't sound like a magpie. This? That's a magpie. Whereas this? That's a pied butcher bird. They're smaller than a magpie. They've got short feet, um, and you don't see them. So you don't see them on the ground very much. You don't really see them. You hear them, because they the, the short feet allow them to maneuver into bushes and rob other birds' nests. It's always a shocking thing to witness, and a very difficult thing to witness. They're not vegetarians. The pot butcher bird gets their name not just from robbing the nests and but from then hanging the extra food up on a twig and a branch so they sort of run a butcher shop to create one of her recompositions taylor records pied butcher birds and transcribes their song into musical notation she also makes a phrase by phrase sonogram a visual representation of the sound her compositions combine musical instruments with field recordings such as other bird songs insects or her fellow campers I call them recompositions because I like to give most of the credit to the pod butcher birds and because it's not my goal to really improve on their songs. The whole point for me has been, could I take a transcription and could I just assign it to a tuba or a flute or a cello and pretty much play it the way that uh, the birds sang it and would it still be music? This question... Is birdsong music has become a central theme of Dr. Taylor's research. And after many years of study, she's convinced the answer is yes. You'll read that birdsong is not music because it's hardwired. And that is just erroneous. It's, it's not even an, a point that can be argued. It's just some people don't realise that songbirds learn their songs. So when you say they learn their songs, you know, you mean that they're not automatons, they're not hardwired to make that noise they are consciously creatively expressing themselves there yes they've they've had to learn their song from their parents or from some other in the case of pied butcher birds they're they're learning their songs from other pied butcher birds and they um in the case of pied butcher birds they are what they call open-ended learners so they continue to learn even in adulthood and they're quite inventive so songbirds 
learn their songs mm-hmm. and, and the, the list of, of the other ones. And songbirds make up about half of the 10,000 bird species. Wow. So all of those, even if it's a simple song, if, if they're called a songbird, it's because they've had to learn it. They aren't born with the capacity. And if they don't hear it from their parents or, or other conspecifics other of the same species, they won't um, either won't produce it or won't produce it in a really species-ordinary way. So it's not nature or nurture, it's both. So another argument people have for why birdsong is not music is because birdsong is purely functional. And again, this is displaying ignorance of both birdsong and human music, I believe, because human music certainly is functional. It's not just pure enjoyment, and of course pure enjoyment is still a function in any case. So I I think there's no... Just before you go on, what do you mean by functional? You know, just explain what you mean there. What functions does it it serve? The functions that birdsong is assumed to serve are territorial defense and mate attraction. And these are well proven in a few species. And there's no reason to not think that this could extend to many or all species. I believe that in species like highly sophisticated, complex songs like the Pied Butcher Bird, that you cannot explain all of that through functionality. And, and I don't think that aesthetics and function are mutually exclusive. They're mutually enhancive. You said human music can serve a function as well. What what do you mean? Like, what's an example there? Well, we affirm our group and our taste uh, through music, and music accompanies all sorts of activities, funerals, weddings, birthdays, trying to get your homework done, jogging, you know, it, it certainly has many, many functions. And then there's the argument that birdsong is insufficiently complex to be called music. Certainly a lot of human music is simple, formulaic, repetitive, and is not complex in harmony or contrapuntal um, effects. So there's plenty of human music that is simple. And then we look at some species like the brown thrasher, who's got thousands of phrases. They think they're improvised, meaning that they can't find an order, a, a logical or predictable order that they're delivered in. And there's many other species like that. Lastly, I asked Hollis Taylor, why does this matter? Why study this for 12 years? She answered by quoting a famous American scientist called Stephen Jay Gould. Well, as Stephen Jay Gould said, we will not fight to say what we do not love. And if we don't know the amazing things that animals, non-human animals, are accomplishing, we'll feel less like trying to save them. And so in this time of extinctions and climate change, and loss of biodiversity is just one small bit that I can do. Our last story today is from conversation intern Juliana Yu, who spoke to Clint Bracknell. He's a lecturer in ethnomusicology and contemporary music at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. Australia has suffered the largest and most rapid loss of languages known to history. Less than 70 are still being spoken on a daily basis. And in Australia, there are at least 100 languages that are hanging on the very brink of extinction. If you read certain sources about Noongar language, they will say that the language is is gone, it's um, maybe dead. 
But then, if you actually speak to Noongar people, you'll find that's certainly not the case. There's still that, that glimmer there, um, that spark that's waiting to ignite. Dr Clint Bracknell is a songwriter, musician, Sydney Conservatorium of Music lecturer, and member of the Noongar community from the southwest of Western Australia. He's working on a project that uses song archives to nourish endangered Aboriginal languages like this one. My sort of thesis or idea is that um, if you're able to sing in a language, then that's a way of making sure the language hangs around and people use it. It's something that um, people can pick up hopefully quicker than picking up a whole language in terms of speaking it fluently. And you can see from examples around the world like uh, New Zealand and Hawaii that if you've got a strong uh, performance culture around a language then that helps to keep the language strong. It all started around seven or eight years ago when Dr Bracknell was still a high school music teacher. So my family were working with this project which involved um, taking archival records and taking the knowledge of senior people in the community, putting that together in workshops and developing illustrated storybooks uh, that were bilingual in Noongar and in English. And we'd always end up singing at the end of the workshops, mostly country and western sort of songs. And then Annie Iris Woods one day said, well, the kids are all interested in dance, so we need songs. And we've got all these country western songs, but what about old Noongar songs? So that sent me on a bit of a, a journey to go and see if I could find any old Noongar songs in the archives. His search for archived song lyrics started in Canberra and took him as far abroad as Germany. What he found, he brought back to the group. One of the best moments was when um, Pop Albert Knapp, who's a wonderful man, um, upon hearing some of these old songs, uh, sung two songs to the whole group in Noongar language he remembered from when he was a boy. And they were beautiful songs, he was a great singer, so it was a very special moment. When people think about Aboriginal music, they'll often think about the didgeridoo, which is an instrument that was originally only from the far north of the continent. Even in areas where the didgeridoo is from, Aboriginal music has always been primarily vocal. Percussion, which can be sticks, can be boomerang, can be other sort of percussion devices, can be used as well. A lot of these songs that I've heard um, from my part of the world are maybe a bit more active. And to me, they sound really playful. And they also will not use strict common time. So there'll be times when the singer will sort of trail off 
or take a big breath for emphasis, or even breathe in as they're singing a spooky word. Unlike storybooks, where only one person can read aloud at a time, songs are more participatory and require the use of memory, which strengthens language learning. Whereas with songs, even with little songs, even with kids' songs, everyone can get involved at the same time. So it's much more participatory. And then through that repetition of singing something over and over and over again, a song can get stuck in your head. And so that song stuck in your head syndrome enables um, an unconscious uh, practice, which is useful in language acquisition. He hopes that this small project is just the beginning of a long journey in transmitting Aboriginal languages through the generations again. It's a real honour to be part of this um, process, but I'm really just the caddy. The goal is that once this small group feels really um, positive about how we've straightened the songs out, how we can all sing them, then that small group is going to teach other people. It will never be me teaching people. That's sort of not the point. Um, it's all about empowerment and um, redressing things that have fallen by the wayside because of colonisation, globalisation, all of these pressures that impact upon intangible cultural heritage. I think singing those languages helps shift the discourse from preserving language to performing language. When I think of the word preservation, I imagine, you know, butterflies pinned to a frame or um, animals in a jar, whereas language is something that has to live and it lives through performance. An American song collector named Alan Lomax described this danger of cultural grey out that we face as the world becomes more connected. And this idea of cultural grey out implies that everyone will gradually become the same and will lose all this difference that makes the world rich. I think that remains a real danger in the world. We do find though, as globalization increases, you have local communities putting up their hand and saying, hey, we want to retain some sort of regional difference. Without knowing about these things, I don't think one can make a judgment about whether they're valuable or not. But that said, to know about these things requires that you take on responsibility and you have relationships. So it's a two-way street. When it comes down to it, I don't really mind if people don't care about Nyungar song. I hope that, well, I know that many Nyungar people do care about Nyungar song. And I think if something matters to somebody, then that's important. That said, songs are really great and they make you smile and you can sing along and feel good. So music's important, song's important, this country is important. And for me that all goes together. If you like Trust Me I'm an Expert, you might enjoy 
Heat and Light, a new podcast from our partners at The Conversation U.S., telling stories from 1968, the year that changed America and the world. The stories are guided by the people who know them best, experts who were so personally affected by the events of that year that they've devoted their lives to studying them. The first episode features Professor Michael Kazin of Georgetown University, who was a student activist in 1968 and got arrested for protesting at the Democratic National Convention that year. There were thousands of police, thousands of plainclothes officers, the National Guard was there at the ready. You know, it was a real conflict, a, a real violent conflict that was going on in the streets of Chicago. That's Heat and Light, available wherever you get your podcasts and at heatlightpod.com. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation, where we bring you the stories, ideas and insights from the world of academic research. Special thanks today to Shelley Hepworth, Juliana Yu and academics Hollis Taylor, Ben Swift and Clint Bracknell. Our theme beats are from Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and we've used music in this podcast from Free Music Archive. The Sigur Ross song, Svet Geengla, was also used with permission. You can see a full list of music credits on our website at theconversation.com. And check out our other podcasts at theconversation.com slash au slash podcasts.